Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 100 of the Mandolins and Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. Um, 100, I can't believe it. It's, it blows my mind. I mean, I didn't think 100 people would listen to an episode, and now that we're at 100 episodes, it's just uh, it's crazy. And then to be interviewing Sam Bush, who... At the, when I wrote out all the mandolin players to think about, like, who, who could I interview for a podcast? The top name was Sam Bush. So when I got the uh, notification that I was going to be able to do this interview, I, I mean, I had to sit down for a little while and <laughs> just do a reality check. So uh, I want to thank, I, I, you know, I say at every, the beginning of every episode brought to you in part by Mandolin Cafe and Scott, I want, besides just being an invaluable source for this entire mandolin community, it's also been an invaluable source for me in this podcast. And I really want to thank Scott for everything that he's done uh, to help me out with all this. So thank you so much, Scott. And I want to thank all all the listeners and everybody who's advertised on this podcast over the last hundred episodes. I mean, I I just, uh, I'm blown away and I want to thank you all so much. I really sincerely mean it. Um, so yeah, so there's that. Get all verklempt thinking about it. Um, this episode with Sam was, uh, two phone calls. Sam's, Sam's such a great guy. I want to share two Sam Bush stories real quick with you. One is this, this episode, we talked so long before we even started recording, and then as we went on, we we actually had to do a second phone call because he had another phone call to take um, and do some business stuff. So we actually had to do this over the course of a couple weeks, and I just thought it was so awesome that Sam is so cool to, to that we just talked forever, it felt like. And then also, I got to open for Sam. We talk about this. We did this episode in March, and I got to open for Sam when he came to Charleston with my band. And, you know, I got to talk with Sam for a while before we sound checked, and then we had to sound check. And um, we, our little dressing room area was outside of where Sam's was. We were warming up, and Sam comes into the uh, into the room just to take time to introduce himself to everybody in the band. And, and it's just such a classy guy in such a cool moment. And, and again, we talked with Sam for so long, my phone was buzzing in my pocket. And I look at my phone and it's the sound guy. And he's like, where are you guys at? You guys start in five minutes. And, you know, he just that's that's the magic of Sam Bush, man. He just um, he's just so cool and so sharing and kind. You just kind of lose track of time. So I just wanted to share those stories and and uh, and and talk about how great Sam was for a second there. So anyway. How would you like one free year of the course of your choice from Peghead Nation? Well, Peghead Nation is giving away one one year subscription to the course of your choice. All you have to do is go to mandolinsofbeer.com and a pop-up menu comes up and it's a subscribe button. First name, last name, and email. Enter. That's it. That'll put you into the contest. And in two weeks, after the second part of the Sam Bush episode airs, I will pick a winner. So thank you to Peghead Nation for donating that. And I mean, Peghead Nation, you can't go wrong. They've got the best teachers in the business doing the doing the lessons. You got Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibish, Chad Manning. From beginner to advanced, from tunes to theory. They've got it all. High definition videos, tabs, notation, downloadable. Do it at your own pace. And even if you don't play mandolin, they got fiddle, dobro, ukulele, bass, guitar, and banjo. So Peghead Nation. 
And if you go to pegheadnation.com right now and uh, sign up, you get 30 days for free by entering mandolin beer at checkout. That's all one word. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Northfield Mandolins. And actually, don't forget, I'll be in Michigan next week, and I'll be in Marshall uh, and taking part in their killer mandolin extravaganza that they're putting on there from 6 to 9. So uh, be sure to check that out. Go to their website, northfieldmandolins.com, and download their app as well, mandosummit.app, for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. And, of course, their incredible Instagram and Ellis Mandolins, handcrafted mandolins designed and built in Austin, Texas. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. Let's get into part one of this interview with Sam Bush. Cheers, everybody. All right, everybody. And now it is time to introduce my absolute hands-down favorite mandolin player one of the main reasons why i play mandolin and how i got to do this podcast the amazing sam bush sam how are you doing i'm doing great it's uh you know springtime as we speak and uh, it's just kind of like new lights budding all around and uh, pretty hopeful feeling in the air yeah for sure and for multiple reasons <laughs> it's a <Yes>. 2021 <laughs> it's a- yeah exactly it's a new year you know and uh, i can see on the horizon some festivals are, festivals are going to start popping up again baseball season's going to go on so i'm, I'm ready I'm, <laughs> let's let's play music and and baseball so a, a quick baseball question i'm also a baseball fan um would you think of the kind of the expanded playoffs last year where they did like the extra wild card stuff uh, I liked it. Mm-hmm. I hope they don't hope they don't do it every year. But one thing I did like about the playoffs is that they stopped starting the runner on second and extra innings. I don't know. That seems kind of like a t-ball thing to do. I'm not sure about that. But, yeah, for sure. But there's there's rule changes and stuff that I like. But you know, I think what I what I did love about the expanded playoffs last year is that in that shortened season we got to see more ball. So that was fun. And you're a Cardinals fan. I am. I grew up. Uh, I grew up uh, outside Bowling Green, Kentucky, and uh, one of the reasons the reason for becoming interested in the Cardinals is that we could uh, you could get uh, out of St. Louis 11:20 a.m. KMOX, the uh, station that broadcast the Cardinals. So I, you know, was born in 1952, so I could. I literally, you know, I listened to Harry Carey and Jack Buck, uh, Cardinal announcers, when I was a kid. So, you know, I listened to radio and hear the games with Bob Gibson and Stan Musial. You know, so it's it's pretty. Uh, they they were just and and every once in a while, you know, they'd be on TV because uh, uh, at that time, um, TV baseball consisted of the Saturday afternoon game of the week on CBS. That was, you know, more than half the time the Yankees. <laughs> and, uh, and then the other National League team, National League teams would basically be the you know Dodgers and Cardinals. It seemed like so. So I did I did get to see Stan Musial on TV and stuff. And oh, that's awesome! Great. Yeah, and then the great Ozzy Smith, obviously. Frankie Fish, Enos, Red and Dizzy. Stan the man, Luke Brock and Gibby. They're making his plaque and etch 
watching his face so the Wizard of Oz can take his place. Hey, Abby. He's number one we love. Hey, Abby. He's got 13 gold gloves. He played in 15 All-Star games. He's going to the... Well, yeah, and uh, <laughs> of course... Of course, Ozzy Smith. Uh, uh, it, it, I, I won't go into it too, but uh, it's been—I don't know how many years ago, five years ago, perhaps—and uh, I had the opportunity uh, to throw out the first pitch at Bush Stadium in St. Louis, and um, my catcher, the receiver behind the plate, was in fact Ozzy Smith. Wow! And so. Uh, because he, of course, was the most masterful person ever with the baseball glove at catching it. <laughs> Let's put it this way. If there'd have been a right-handed batter in the box, I would have hit him in the left ankle. And, uh, but Ozzie Smith only moved his arm and hand, didn't move the rest of his body, and caught the ball. So I didn't bounce it, but uh, you know, it wasn't over the plate. Let's put it that way. And uh, and and he came running back to the mound and said, "I made you look good." Oh my gosh! <laughs> so cool. to my delight, he was a sweet guy. But yeah, I know. And I, of course, John Pennell and I wrote the song "The Wizard of Oz" uh, in our love of. Him and uh, you know his playing and just how entertaining it was to watch him. Can he still do the flip? I bet he can. I bet he can. <laughs> Would have to stretch a little bit, a little warm up. <laughs> I bet he can. So let's. Talk. You did mention. Um, you did mention you do have a kind of have a new project in the works. Um, so what? That, what's going on with that? Oh well, just uh, in in all. <laughs> I, uh, I I like some, uh, I don't think I'm unique here, but during 2020, I I'd actually started working on it before. And when my wife and I go to the beach, when Lynn and I go to the beach down at the uh, Gulf Coast of Florida, I like to sit around and make up tunes and have you know have a recorder there and take all take my the five bluegrass instruments I can play with me and uh, <laughs> do, uh, I can't play dobro, but you know, but I I play all the rest of them and. Um, just, you know, I started, you know, basically I would put tunes on what I still call tape, <laughs> uh, put tunes on tape to, um, uh, just to show the band. And then it got where, well, I it got more serious about it when a friend brought over a real digital recorder and, uh, and realized, oh, I can, this is all digital now. I can make over, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. So, uh, that and a KM 184 Neumann and, you know, some a mic tech vocal mic and boom. And so I started playing all these things myself. And, and, uh, so, I, so I've got a, a project coming out where I played all the things, my, all the instruments myself, except for one song where I finally got to get back in the studio with the Sandbush band, thankfully. And, uh, cause that's the most joy. So, you know, later, later in 2021, it's going to come out and, um, but uh, you know the most jo- the joyful part of music for me is to play with other people, and that's what as Chris Brown, our, our drummer, and I were talking early in the pandemic last year, said you know after a couple of months, right, of uh, not seeing any friends or playing any music, we you know we were talking about that you know the the reason we the joyful part of music as you learn when we were kids as we were learning is to get together with your buddy and, and uh, well, you know, show, figure out stuff, figure out things together and, and, and discover music together and, and, and share that joy. So to this day, that is the, that is the joyful part. So, you know, as we speak, we're going to get back uh, to, to play in here pretty, 
pretty soon, and this is March. And um, so, you know, that joy is just, uh, uh, that's, that's where it's at, just communicate, the, the, the communicating. And, of course, those of us that come from acoustic music world, We've 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 really we've really known that joy of just just sitting in a circle and bouncing off each other with your instruments. It's so much fun. Oh, it's the best. And yeah, you say joy. I mean, that's the one thing you exude <laughs> during those live shows too, man. It's tough to not have a good time at a Sam Bush show. <laughs> that's for sure. Well, I'm probably the one having the most fun because I, <laughs> I mean, I love you know I love to play rhythm more than anything. I think. I mean, that's that's been that way for a really long time and uh that's uh, you know just i've you know i've often thought that you know if you if you want you know if you want to succeed when you're playing a slow a solo on your instrument then of course it's got to be popping behind you and so that uh that's that's my goal is that when when you're playing a solo, I want you to, you know, feel better about it because I'm, I'm I want to give you good rhythm. Yeah, that's awesome. And you've done a few live shows. Did you do a few live shows at the very end of 2020? Did you play like maybe well, we got, we, Brewing? Was that one of the places I saw? Maybe. Yes, we uh, in in September we got to play three socially distant shows, and so that was like our our, our fall tour. We did three nights in a <laughs> row, and. Um, and yes, after after not playing as the, the Sam Bush band since March 10th, when we got to play in September again, I mean, just just those traveling, getting back in there, you know, we all got tested and we were all it was that all worked out, and we got back and got back in a bus and played three straight nights. Oh man, it was like. Uh, it was like what you picture getting to be in the Beatles or something, and uh, and then we did one uh, uh, show uh, just in uh, October, and so really we haven't done anything since then. We we're going to try to maybe maybe start up and play a, a few nights, a few Tuesdays in uh, in April here in Nashville at a club, and maybe perhaps for streaming. We're still trying to work that out, but that's what we hope to do. And then, as you know, we're going to play in uh, uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Will really be our first show back uh, on uh, what April 29th. Yeah, oh boy, I cannot wait. So, you know, it's uh, but yes, we those those four socially distant shows that we did last year, and uh, were such a joy. I mean, gosh, it's so fun. And because um, again, it's the circle of communication with the other musicians that excites me i mean uh you know and, and obviously we all love to sit around and play our instruments and, and enjoy that and uh but it's getting to it's getting to play them with the others that's that's so much fun and 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 for you i mean i mean you're like a road warrior <laughs> too and you know i was yeah, yeah that's what i mean you know it's it's um when was the last time you had had that much time off of the road Never. I mean, never. Uh, not, you know, since I started playing music for a living, which was, uh, I was 18, I graduated from high school in 1970, moved from Bowling Green, Kentucky, up to Louisville, and started, I actually started on guitar with the uh, Bluegrass Alliance, and uh, I, there was already a mandolin player in place. And uh, but I was offered the uh, the job of taking Dan Grant Dan Crary the great Dan Terry Crary's place on guitar, 
Now, I, of course, I knew Dan, and I actually, he when I was in high school, Dan had me uh, play some play some Texas fiddle tunes on the mandolin for him on tape, and he learned, you know, some of those versions that became some of his guitar tunes, where he you know made his guitar record first guitar album and uh, so we knew each other and I had a I had a good you know a visual memory of how Dan's fingers work because first thing I wanted to do was try to copy Dan's uh, playing in that band because that was the sound of the group and uh, and it wasn't until so started moved, moved up to Louisville and started playing guitar and I was only in the band a couple of months when uh, we went to uh, Reedsville, North Carolina, and that was the Labor Day weekend festival at Camp Springs. And uh, I was, uh, a friend named John Caparacus said that, man, there's a guy sitting out in the field over there that playing guitar like Clarence White. And uh, I we uh, we went over and listened to him, and he was the world's skinniest man sitting on a... <laughs> Those uh, uh, those old blue Martin Unipack cases that used to make uh, they were new at the time, and uh, he was playing a brand a brand new D forty five. Well, it belonged to whoever owned that case, and it was in fact a guy only a year older than me who was nineteen. I was eighteen, and that was Tony Rice, and so uh, that was uh, the fall of seventy, I guess. Yes, and um, so that's when. Um, met Tony right there when he had seen me play on stage with Bluegrass Alliance and we struck up a conversation and uh, that's when you know I got all excited and man man if you, if you come play in our band I could go back and play Manlin you know, <laughs> and then I go back to the uh, campsite and of course you know, we, we didn't get hotel rooms then it was a campsite right so go back to the campsite and say hey 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 I just got this guy to play guitar with us and that's where the other guys in the band went what um that's that's where young sam finds out the youngest dumbest guy in the band does not go offering somebody else a position in the group uh and so but anyway once tony came back over and started playing with us we it was it was only a couple within a couple of weeks he he moved to louisville and, and uh, started playing guitar with us and i got to go back to mandolin and uh so that's uh how you know kind of got started professionally so from that point on i mean it's always been just um it um it it it, it it's kind of funny to me you know when talking about when i see the, the term touring uh you know i mean yes we do tours of sections where you go out for a couple of weeks and you know we play and have a tour of colorado through utah that's what we were on last uh 2020 when we were you know just coming back from that when the pandemic started but um but really if, if like for instance the whole the whole career of new grad survival was you know for 18 years we didn't tour we went on the road you know <laughs> we lived you know you just go play uh so it it's all so it's it's been a 50-year tour really uh and, and you know it, it, it kind of went by because uh, I didn't think much about it till we were in the middle of 2020. That wow, this I've actually been on the road. Now, and of course, we and I don't we we don't go out and stay out for months. Uh, but you know, I've been on the road literally for 50 years, and it was like wow, it's kind of amazing to think about, and 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 very fortunate that you know still up and running of all the things that can happen and mishaps that can occur and what have you so uh it's uh i've been pretty fortunate that i've you know been on the road that long and 
And I always wondered what it'd be like. Well, maybe, you know, someday, you know, want to retire. Well, <laughs> I feel like I've been retired for a year. <laughs> Boy, I'm not ready. Yeah. I'm not ready. So, and, and, and of course, it, I think uh, those of us that when you, when you get out and, and anybody in a group, I think you'll find that your, your muscles and your set of chops that you develop from playing with, particularly with certain other people that, you know, they're, they're just different than the ones you have sitting around and, and playing it by yourself. So, uh, right now I'm looking forward to, you know, getting, getting my stage muscles back. Yeah. I spent a lot of time woodshedding on the couch this past year. And I remember the first live gig, I'm like, uh Oh, uh, somebody better practice standing up more often. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yes, I, <laughs> Uh, just this past Saturday night, I played on the Grand Ole Opry, and I, due due to COVID at this time, we couldn't bring the band. So I played one song by myself, singing and playing guitar, and then I played another one with the House Opry Band. But for a week before that, I practiced uh, standing up and and singing, and 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 well, I can definitely sing better standing up. Anyway, uh, that comes from training in high school, mixed chorus, uh, but. Uh, uh, it, it, it's sometimes easier to play better when you're sit. When I sit down, I'm cradling that thing and you're <laughs> really down over it and cradling. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's resting on your knees and what have you. And uh, but, um, but you're right. It is. It's a whole different set of chops standing up. You said something a little bit ago that is just in in the um, in the bluegrass world could have been. Just it could be a whole new ball game. Is if that meeting with Tony Rice had not happened in that field, you could have still been playing guitar and never met Tony Rice. And the fact that I can't even comprehend those two things. <laughs> like if that meeting, yeah, I don't, happened. I don't think the I don't think the world needed me to play the guitar. <laughs> I mean, if anything, I think it's pretty well. I mean, I grew up lo- loving the mandolin uh, around around the house. Uh, uh, my dad, uh, you know, was a farmer, but we had, and my mother would play guitar a little bit and my dad played fiddle and, and, uh, would also had owned a mandolin and would also kind of, you know, play some fiddle tunes on that too. And he listened to these, the great Grand Ole Opry fiddler, Tommy Jackson. And um, Tommy made instrumental records, and uh, on the instrumental, on Tommy's fiddle albums, were in fact uh, a mandolin player that many times would play the melody in unison with Tommy. And uh, I, I love the sound of the fiddle and the mandolin together, but for the, but the mandolin really kind of interested me more. Mm-hmm. And um, and it, it's I've always felt like you know when people play both instruments, mandolin and fiddle, usually it's fiddle is your first instrument and mandolin's the other. For me, I think it's the other way around. I'm a mandolin player first and, and a fiddler, you know, after that. And I, I enjoy them both. I love them, but that's kind of way it came for me. And 
So uh, I didn't know who played the mandolin on some of those records. Later, I found out that uh, Red Rector played some of those. But uh, through playing on, when I got old enough to play, I'm just old enough that I played. I got to play sessions with some of the great, you know, A-team session players from the '60s and '70s in Nashville. And one of them was this uh, rhythm guitar player named Ray Eddington. And Ray has played on countless records, right? And so his history of country music is just phenomenal and what he's been part of. And I got to play on a session with Ray Eddington once and got to talking and, and I realized it. Oh, man, you... And so Ray, yeah, Ray played rhythm guitar on many of the Tommy Jackson albums I grew up loving and learning tunes from. And I said, who played the mandolin on that? He said, well, you know, yeah, he told me that Red Rector played some, but that uh, quite a few was played by Hank Garland. Oh, wow. And I went, Hank Hank Garland? I, I didn't know Hank Garland played the mandolin. And he said, well, he didn't really. He was just such a, he was such a great musician that Tommy would teach him the tunes right before we recorded them. And then he would play... Because there weren't really mandolin solos, per se. It was uh, playing the melodies along with Tommy. And that just blew my mind. That how, you know, he was such a good musician that he could take a mandolin and um, you know, play along with Tommy Jackson, note for note. And uh, so that's the story of my style. I, I started playing influenced by a person that didn't actually play the mandolin. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, but... On the other hand, that's also started my fingers moving in a way because I didn't start with Bill Monroe. I later discovered Bill Monroe, and he didn't play the fiddle melodies the same way that, that these were done on the Tommy Jackson records. And um, so there was, there was, you know, it was early in life, I uh, found out about Jethro Burns. As a kid, uh, if my dad, I don't know how he would know this, uh, but you know, every once in a while he'd let me stay up late when Holman Jethro would be on one of the late night shows, which was either at that time, the Tonight Show was Jack Parr and uh, Joey Bishop had a show, uh, a late night show. And that was the one where Holman Jethro would be, we're actually on Joey Bishop more. And uh, and you'd see them also on a, on a network show, the Jimmy Dean Show. And uh, so, but my dad, uh, I remember we were listening, and it's just like the scene out of the coal miner's daughter movie where, uh, you know, you see people sitting around listening, literally showing them listen to the Grand Ole Opry on Saturday, Friday, Saturday nights. Well, we live close to Nashville, so we've got great radio reception. And um, I remember one night, and I had discovered Bill Monroe, you know, so I thought, wow, this is, this is a, another great Mammon thing. He, he he's the, he's the guy on the mainland, and of course he is. Uh, but um, I remember hearing Bill Monroe one Saturday night play John Henry.
uh, it just blew my mind, you know, and uh, I just, wow. And my and I can't say the exact words my dad said, but I'll, he he'd go, "Oh, that ain't nothing." Let's say he said, "That ain't nothing." He goes, "You need you need to hear Jethro Burns." Wow. So my father wasn't necessarily a bluegrass fan. He was just a fan of fiddle music. If that a fiddle, he wanted to be part of that. Uh, but uh, bluegrass, of course, had the great fiddlers, so he so he liked that part of it. But um, but. He, I was the bluegrass fan, not so much my dad, but but at any rate, yes, he was right. I did need to hear Jethro Burns more, and Alan Mundy was the first person that ever gave me a tape of uh, the first Homer and Jethro. They made two instrumental albums, and the first Homer and Jethro album playing it straight, Alan gave me a, a tape of that. And uh, later, I bought them both, both the instrumental records at, down at the. It still exists on Broadway in Nashville, the Ernest Tubb Record Shop, and uh, so I bought both those at the. But uh, uh, you know, it was. I mean, what Jethro was playing, the jazz playings of Jethro on those albums, just so far over my head. Uh, there, there. Sometimes I think that I'm just now beginning to understand, and and I and I love Jethro, and I got to be around him a lot and and learn straight from his fingers, you know. But still, there's just there's some things Jethro did that I, I still I, I think it's still over my head. So uh, you know, so for for entirely different reasons, my two biggest influences right off the bat as a kid were Bill Monroe and and uh, Jethro Burns, and uh, you know they they're nothing alike, and uh, but they're both wonderful and. Uh, and and but also had the great advantage of being uh you know growing up only an hour from Nashville getting to see on TV uh particularly Bobby Osborne and Jesse McReynolds oh, yeah. those two and uh again nothing alike and and I knew when I was a kid that Jesse was the most unique of all these people that was the only one that never or you know didn't try to copy Bill Monroe necessarily. (laughs) (laughs) That his own was his own man on his own person, you know. So I, you know, in that way, uh, and, and getting, and I got, and I got to see Bill Monroe on TV, you know, and and so I, I, didn't, I thought everybody got to do that, right? right? That Bill Monroe was on everywhere in America. No, he wasn't. I was watching Nashville local television shows, and wow. uh, so I got to see Monroe and 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 and, and, the, and the Osmond brothers and Jim and Jesse. And every once in a while, they'd, they'd have some clips on one channel that came in that was Don Reno and Red Smiley with a young Ronnie Reno on the mandolin. So I got to, I was influenced by all those people, you know, and and, and those beautiful F five Gibsons they played. And I, I didn't I didn't own an F five mandolin until I was um, twenty, almost twenty one. Oh no kidding! And, uh, 
Yes, and so no, I, I no, I, I was an A model <laughs> player, and uh, now my first Manlin uh, I got when I was eleven was was at you know a brand new Gibson A fifty, and it was I was the king I was the king of the world, brother. Oh, I bet. Do you still own it? No, I <laughs> <laughs> no, I had to trade it in. Uh, I had to trade it in for a guitar when I joined the Bluegrass Alliance oh. because I didn't have a good guitar. <laughs> no way. Oh, <laughs> way. man. So, yeah, no telling where, what in the world ever happened to that. Oh, wow, that'd be so great if that turned up somewhere, though. Wow, man. I, I, now, how I, un, unknown how one would ever know it because I, I don't, I don't anywhere, you know, have the serial number to it written down or anything. So it'd be pretty hard to know. But I, too, suffered from the same fate. That mandolin suffered from the same fate as Bill Monroe's F5 when, when it had a, when it got a factory overspray. Oh, really? Uh, I would religiously take it back to the music store in Louisville where we bought it and, uh, and uh, get my neck adjusted once a year, as they told you to, to adjust your truss rod. Well, of course, you don't really have to do that, right? But that's what, so, yeah, okay. So it was maybe the second year I owned it, and this guy with a big mustache named Ralph uh, was adjusting the neck, and all of a sudden, had it set up on the counter there, and all of a sudden, you hear, clank, and, and he just looked up, and he goes, uh, truss rod just broke. Oh, and so, no. Oh, yeah, so that was the summer of 66. Six, I guess, and uh, I just uh, I had to spend all after owning a Gibson A50, which you know I was in love with. My A50, uh, I had to play. No offense, I had to play a harmony mandolin all summer, and it was just uh, after. I mean, the just the smell of the finish, yuck. <laughs> and <laughs> but when I got it back, you know, it looked like brand new. Oh wow. And I remember pulling it out of the case, and it just didn't sound as good. Oh, and I later found out, uh, and they told me at the music store later that well, they 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 put a a coat of uh, they spray a new coat of finish on it to shine it up for you when they do that. So I'm under the understanding that's what happened to Bill Monroe's Manlin when he sent it back to get when it went back to Gibson for frets. And uh, and that's one, to my knowledge, one of the reasons well, you know they sanded, he sanded it off. And <laughs> right. Got mad enough to dig the word Gibson out of the headstock. Um, so you know it happened. It's that happened to me. They oversprayed my A50, and it, it didn't sound as good. Then I, you know, from memory, still I was thrilled to get it back. Of course. Oh, of course, and get your your baby back. But what a bummer, you know. The things you know in hindsight now, like, why would they spray another coat of finish on it <laughs> to send it back? <laughs> yeah. Well, they know in hindsight, too, obviously. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that was just to, just to, you know, make it look new and shiny. Oh, man. Um, speaking of Jethro Burns, have you run across the website? I was just on it yesterday. Um, it is one of his old students taped all his lessons that he took with Jethro. And they were digitized and they're put online. And there's just hundreds of like Jethro exercises and him playing tunes into it was like on a on a to a cassette recorder and somebody put it online. It's amazing. I haven't. What where where, where, where 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 can I go? I'll send you the link. I'll email you the Please. link. Um Please do write that down. I'll get that information. Yeah, it's and for all, amazing. And, yeah, man. I mean it's it's just an amazing wealth of knowledge and 
I, I could use that right now. Yeah, I'll send that to you. Yeah, it'll blow your mind. It's just so cool to hear, you know, to hear his voice and then, you know, to hear him. I mean, just teaching these like crazy four-fingered diminished licks and, you know, and then yeah. you're playing well, like a yeah. wizard. Well, I, I became, I was not only, you know, he was, he was like a, he was like my, my dirty uncle Jethro, you know, and, and uh, we, we became friends and some of the things he'd say to me, it was just outrageous. And I just loved him so much. And the last, um, I knew how sick he was. And so, and, and it was, uh, he used to open of all things for new grass revival and we'd play, and back when Courtney and Curtis and John and me were the band, and then later on when Bela Patton, John and I were the band, he'd still open for us, and he loved us, and God, did we love him. And and, and he loved my wife, Lynn, and then, you know, she loved Jethro, and, and uh, they would talk while while the Newgrass boys played, and then he'd, you know, get up and play with us. But uh, I was, so I was taping him, and as it turned out, it was the last time we ever were on the same bill. And... Uh, he said the funniest thing, and uh, he said, uh, "Oh, look, there's Bush with his tape recorder." Don Sternberg does the best Jethro. <laughs> he does for but, sure. Uh, my, mine's a poor second to Don's or <laughs> fifth to Don's. Uh, but anyway, he, wow, look, there's Bush with his tape recorder. God, they're cute at that age, and I, I know what he's thinking. He's thinking. Gosh, I hope he never dies. <laughs> and I was just sitting there. And I mean, I think tears were popping in my eyes. And he goes, but I will. Oh. And he'll be left all alone, not knowing who to copy. <laughs> 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 and I think that's true. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. He's oh, still wow. the, the person that, I, you know, mandolin-wise, I would still look up to him and still try to, I'm still trying to learn his, I'm still trying to learn Jethro. So you you know you started out your bluegrass alliance obviously kind of kind of a traditional thing. What was it eventually going into new grass revival that you were able to look at a mandolin and be like, "There's you know what? There's other things we can do with this thing." Well, I mean, there was never any one realization where that you know popped into my mind or anything because I mean I can even listen back to uh, the record Poor Richard's Almanac and because I played. I always played guitar also. I don't know when I started playing or why, but, you know, I always, I love guitar and I've always been a fan of guitar and guitar players. And I remember, uh, you know, I can, I can hear, uh, there's something, I can't remember what tune it was, but even on Porridge's Almanac, I was trying to play a, a you know, a Yorma Kalkinen from the Jefferson Airplane. I was trying to play Yorma Kalkinen licks on the mandolin and... So I always, you know, I, I would play, man, uh, you know, get electric guitar in the high school rock bands, but at the same time, I might be in a bluegrass band where I played either mandolin or fiddle. And it was all just, you know, one big sound of music I was trying to accomplish. And so there was never any one realization, but I mean, I, I just um, recently listened to a whole 
tape of uh, a tape. Uh, you know, it's now it's a CD somebody made for me. Um, but the the Bluegrass Alliance, uh, when you know a whole set when we had you know, Tony was in the band, and so it was pleasant memories. And uh, but we were trying to we were trying all kinds of stuff. I mean, I remember we you know we had certain tunes that we did that you know we never we never really rec- we never. Re- I think we made a couple of, we recorded a couple of songs with Tony in, in a studio that I have no idea what would have ever happened to them. And, um, um, but you know, we, we, we did things like, uh, the love and spoonfuls, darling, be on soon. Uh, Tony would sing the, the old, the song we originally done by the seekers. I know I'll never find another you. And we just had all kinds of things we were trying. And, uh, uh, it was just that when, when, and then when Tony left the band, Curtis Birch replaced him. And it was just a couple of months later, we, we all, we had this falling out with Lonnie, our fiddle player and come to find out he owned the name of the band, Bluegrass Alliance. And, uh, but so we just said, well, let's put it this way. The four of us quit. Uh, and, um, <laughs> you can't fire me on the band. And it was true. He did. Um, uh. uh, and so, okay, well then we'll just, so we got it and we got a new name, but maybe with that, we, cause we just started these jamming things. And one of the first, um, practices we ever had, uh, I still don't call them rehearsals because Alan Mundy made the joke one time. Well, rehearse if you rehearse, you have to learn 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 dance steps. <laughs> 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 so we just practiced, and uh, so we were having a band practice. And uh, Ebo, the bass player, went into this riff that now I know where he got it from. I never thought much about it because I didn't listen to country music anymore at that time. Uh, uh, he, it's, it's the bass lick off Jolene, I think, by oh, Dolly wow. Parton. Yeah. And, uh, and so he both started playing that bass lick, and we would just kind of take turns playing improv in D minor over that lick. And then I remember all of a sudden that this old Courtney on the banjo just busted into Lonesome Fiddle Blues by Vassar Clements. And that's how we worked up our arrangement of if we even actually arranged it, if we sort of fell into it. But discovering that you, because, you know, I, playing open-ended solos was not a, certainly a new thing in music for Pete's sakes, but it was just a new discovery for us and on bluegrass-style instruments, maybe. And, uh, I mean, you know, because, you know, I, I'd been one of the one of my good friends, and we still are, Ken Smith from Bowling Green. He, uh, he played, or maybe even gave me the record, Best of Atlantic Jazz. And uh, one of the greatest things I'd ever heard at that time was uh, a version of the, you know, the tune, uh, My Favorite Things. It was done by John Coltrane. Well, now I know that was probably one of the most commercial things John Coltrane ever did. (laughs) But to to hear him improvise, he, you know, established the melody and then improvise over just, you know, one chord. 
And that's the first time I really realized about that. But I'd also been hearing, you know, in the world of rock and roll, I mean, hell, I used to be in a rock band. We played In Agata De Vida. So that was, you know, a 15-minute long song and <laughs> that where right. the guitar just got to keep soloing. And, and that's the way the Jefferson Airplane did it, and the, but especially the Cream. So I was a fan of Clapton on the guitars and, and, and Yorma, especially on in the Airplane. Uh, I listened to some Grateful Dead then, but it was really the Cream and Hendrix. Uh, where I thought about just jamming, you know, over these changes and getting to play. And I, I did it in high school rock bands on the guitar. So really, we it just it just kind of led there. There was no real one, you know, okay, I'm going to change the style of mandolin. That, that's, that's, that was never that. It's just, and with each, you know, change that the, that the band Newgrass Revival went through, brought in a whole new, you know, way of, playing and that was about communicating with the other musicians so really uh there's you know i'd like to say i had (laughs) there was a big stroke of genius to want to play different things but it was really just what led me there having been a lover of rock and roll some you know jazz and uh bringing and and at the same time you know figuring out how you could also bring bill monroe jethro and john duffy and dean webb into the whole thing you um and you guys got inducted to the uh, Bluegrass Hall of Fame last year. Would you have ever imagined when you first started Newgrass Revival and kind of you know playing a completely different style of music at some of these festivals, which I'm sure probably shocked some people? <laughs> you know, like yeah. what is this? Like, would you have ever imagined being in the Bluegrass Hall of Fame with that? You know, so far down the line. No, but I would never imagine that there would be such a thing as a Bluegrass Hall of Fame. <laughs> That's a good point. I mean, this has really grown a lot. And, uh, you know, when, when I first, you know, started playing for a living, you know, festivals were in their infancy. And, uh, and I was very fortunate that I got, I did get to go to the first, arguably the first, well, definitely the first multi day bluegrass little festival in, in, uh, Roanoke, Virginia in 1965. And, uh, so I, and that you of course and again it, it, it wasn't a this is what i want to do with my life moment but it obviously led me to look what i'm doing look what i'm still doing and uh led me that I, the love of congregating because the first thing that ever happened when i got to roanoke and i was 13 uh you know after driving all night to get there um man you pull up and it's you know there's there's like jam sessions going on in different jam sessions. And in no time I was in one, you know, and it's like, wow, this is a new world. And, and, uh, didn't know it could be like this. And, uh, cause I read about that in the, in the folk magazine sing out the ad for it and begged my parents to let me go because that's where all the male players were going to be. And, uh, so at that first Roanoke, I got to see, you know, Ronnie Reno, Bob Osborne, Jesse, uh, Bill Monroe. And I was in a jam session playing my A50 when all of a sudden this, what I now know is one of the best mandolins I would ever play. And it was a Lloyd Lore. The F5 was lowered kind of down in front of me. And I heard this voice say, Hey man, play a good one. <laughs> I want to hear you play a good mandolin. And that's how I met David Grisman. Oh, that is a good impersonation right there, by the way. Doggy, 
dog dog lowered his mandolin into me. He wanted to hear me play a better mandolin. I couldn't. He said I couldn't take play here, and you play that little A model. I knew I knew you needed to play my mandolin. Oh, and wow. so uh, that's uh, where I met David, and he was on stage. So that was when I first saw what was called a mandolin workshop, and uh, to sit there. And David was one of the uh, you know performers in the workshop. It was Monroe and. And, uh, you know, Jesse and, and uh, uh, Ronnie Reno and and uh, and David, right? So, wow. So, and to sit there and for them to show you how they played certain things, I mean, boom, what a, what a moment I got to experience. Oh, so, wow. I, I don't know how I got sidetracked on all no, that. No, this but is it, great, it, man. I love it. But it was just, you know, getting in on um, – bluegrass at the ground floor so i know where i was going so okay so festivals were still kind of our reward uh to because uh once i started playing for a living because what you really did was play in clubs for four or five nights a week if you were lucky and you could you know get that amount of work and where you only played music for a living so uh that's how we got started in the bluegrass alliance and we played you know, we play four or five nights a week in a club, and uh, and then when the when the spring hit in the spring of seventy one, uh, late spring, we started going to some festivals, and uh, oh man, was that fun to get out and you know, and again, we didn't have hotel rooms yet. Courtney had an old school bus, <laughs> and uh, we lived in that, and it, it wasn't made the way you think of buses these days. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, it was a fifty-seven, nineteen fifty-seven international school bus, <laughs> but still sitting on top of the world. Are you kidding? Getting yeah. to go out and play music for a living, and uh, so really, the festival scene grew throughout that. And later that summer, we played. We got to play at Bill Monroe's Bean Blossom Festival. So we were doing the songs that the, that Dan Crary had established with the Bluegrass Alliance. And um, when we did 110 Soldier at Bean Blossom, it went over like gangbusters. And, uh, and, and, and Monroe was totally behind us. Bill was, Bill, Bill was, you know, he, 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 he wanted us to play our kind of music. And he always encouraged people to play their music. And, uh, I think that, you know, he liked it when people played like him, but he, but he also encouraged, I, I know he, he encouraged us. And he actually gave the Bluegrass Alliance a song called Body and Soul. I mean, he had that, so we, he taught us that song. Body and It, uh, but also, I mean, but but again, at that festival, it was pretty wide open. It wasn't just Bill Monroe style music or old, what you think of as old traditional bluegrass, because one of the greatest things I ever heard was right there, and that was very influential on the Newgrass Revival later, was hearing the what we all call the aerial plane band, John Hartford, Norman Blake, Vassar Clements, and Todd Taylor. And they didn't, they didn't have a bass player in the band. Randy Scruggs played electric bass on the album. But um, so getting to hear them, and I knew Vassar already, and that's where I met John Hartford. Was we all met him at Bean Blossom, and there, and boom, we were in a jam session with him there. And and they loved Hartford. 
if people knew him, uh, you know, you know that nobody loved playing an instrument and jamming with other people more than John Harper did I of anyone I ever met. So, you know, we were jamming with Norman and Vassar and Tut and John. It was wonderful. So I got to hear all that. And that was, of course, you know, not what some people would consider bluegrass, but it was certainly what I would consider the formation of what people call newgrass was here in that band. If there wasn't, without the aerial plane band and the aerial plane album, I don't think you'd have what people call newgrass music. Boy, and Harford, what a prolific guy. <laughs> yeah, and Norman on Mandolin, you know, oh, yeah. one of the most unsung heroes of the mandolin. And, and uh, just, I learned a lot of taste uh, on the instrument from watching and listening and playing with Norman. Yeah, he's, uh, I just got a 1916 uh, A, uh, A2, A1, and I named it Norman just because I, that was like, I remember seeing a video of him playing a similar pumpkin top kind of mandolin. I'm like, my, uh, my Yamaha guitar, Curtis and I, Bert and I both owned Yamaha guitars at the time. And man, mine is just a particularly great sounding guitar. And I, it, it's, it's only about 40 feet from me right now from where we're talking. And, uh, Norman Blake just hated my Yamaha. <laughs> he, he said, it's got a great sound, but I just cannot play that thing. And, <laughs> So back when uh, Norman, uh, they made uh, Norman Blake strings, the GTR company, George Tut and Randy, what became Groon Guitars later, uh, they made GTR strings, and there's picture, a small miniature version of Norman's picture on that, on the string package from, from uh, uh, his first album back home in Sulphur Springs. Uh, if that's yeah, that's Norman's first, but his first record with this great black and white photo of Norman uh, on the cover, Slick Lawson took the photo. Um, <laughs> I, I cut that out and uh, glued it to the headstock of my Yamaha. <laughs> and the next time I saw him, I said, look here, it's the Norman Blake Yamaha model. <laughs> and, uh, oh, God, and it's still on there. <laughs> Is it really? Oh, yeah. my gosh, that's cool. I, I've often thought about going to, because again, we, now we know great people with Pearl and stuff, and I, oh, I still oh might gosh. have somebody someday artistically put inlay Norman Blake in the headstock of that guitar. That would <laughs> be amazing. That's still on there. The, the, <laughs> the piece of paper is still glued on there. <laughs> yeah. oh, but wow. uh, yeah, uh, the name of that guitar is Norman, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Whether he oh. likes it or not, oh, that's I talked to him recently. We had a wonderful talk. Yeah, that. Um, have you heard that new album, newish album that him and Compton just put out? good really really good i haven't i need to hear that yeah that's an excellent one so yeah, I there's mean, and, one of the great male players in the world mike Compton. oh yeah and that also reminds me to send you too i have a um i also have you you mentioned the mandolin workshops and um the first time i ever really heard of a mandolin workshop was again when i was first playing mandolin you know and the internet was new i found a 
mandolin workshop of you and dog and it is amazing where's that from oh, you know? i have to remember now i'll send you a copy of that as well it is wow. so great yeah, I remember you're tuning and you. there's a great thing. I can't do a dog impression, unfortunately, but there's a, you, you're tuning and you're like, anybody knows just mandolins never stay in tune. And David's like, I, I got one that stays in tune. You're like, really? He's like, yeah, it doesn't have any strings on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, doggy. Uh, we're, we're, we're close pals and, and we always will be. And uh, if we don't, we, we can go a long time without, we haven't talked and, uh, we just pick right back up where we were when we did our record together called Hold On, We're Strumming. Oh, great record. All right, this seems like a good spot to edit it right here. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. Episode 100. It wouldn't be here without y'all, so thank you so much. And don't forget, let's go to mandolinsandbeer.com. Take two seconds and subscribe to the mailing list. A pop-up comes right up, and you'll be put into a chance to win a one-year subscription to the course of your choice at Peghead Nation. Cheers, everybody. Have a great week.